Welcome to Your Property Podcast and today we are interviewing Mark Poole and very excited to have Mark on the podcast today and he's going to tell you a bit about about himself but he's been full-time in property since 2003 and is mainly focusing around London and Swindon areas and he's written some articles for the magazine as well. Um, We've actually had an interview before last year haven't we Mark and Uh, I'm not going to give it away, but some of his ideas have really stuck in my head. So I was very keen to get him back on the podcast and to, um, you know, to share these ideas with with our audience. So tell us a little bit of background about yourself and what happened in 2003 to make you take the leap of faith and uh, jump into property full time. Well, thanks very much, Michelle. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, I should say I haven't been full-time since 2003. I've been in property since uh, 2003. I've been full-time um, since about 2013, so the last six or seven years. Um, so I got started in property way back in 2003 when I first became a landlord. And the way I got going, and you know, it's something I think is still a valid way to get started today, and that's... Um, I bought my own flat in London, um, always with a view to renting it out, but as a, as a place to live primarily. Um, you know, it's easier in a sense to get a mortgage as your PPR, less deposit and so on. Um, so I found a flat, it was a probate sale, uh, it needed everything doing to it. it, didn't even have, not only did it not have gas central heating, it didn't even have gas to the property. Um, it had no kitchen to speak of. I mean, literally, when I moved in, I think they'd left the cooker. Uh, that was it. There were no units. Um, and I basically bought that, moved in, and did it up over time. You know, it was a question of, I was working in the city back then. Um, so it was a question of going to work, saving some money, getting a kitchen, going to work, saving some money, <laughs> getting a bathroom. Uh, it took about three years in total. I uh, got it up and running, it was, it was fully refurbished, and then um, I just did the classic uh, consent to let, uh, and moved on, and bought another flat, but kept that one, and hey presto, I was a landlord. Um, also remortgaged it slightly, just to take out enough money to get a deposit on the second flat, and I kind of moved 15 minutes down the road, um, so I went from West Wimbledon to Rains Park, uh, in southwest London. Um, and I did the same thing again. I actually bought a one bed flat that time. Uh, it was on the market. Uh, I thought it, it wasn't a you know, hugely BNB deal or anything like that, but it, it was uh, probably about 10,000 under value and it was being advertised by bizarrely a northern London letting agent um, rather than a kind of local southwest uh, agent. And um, I think that was. Part of the reason for the kind of slight price discrepancy was a landlord selling up a bunch of properties. Um, so again, it was a bit tired and I did the same thing, moved into that, went to work, bought a kitchen, went back to work, bought a bathroom. Uh, and um, three years later, so we're up to about 2005, 2006, I did the same again, got consent to let, remortgaged it slightly, got a deposit and then finally bought a house in London. Um, so by that stage, I then had two uh, London properties, they were going well. I'd obviously bought fairly well. I built some equity in them. And I thought, you know, this is the way forward. Uh, I then became a freelance consultant, so I didn't have a pension plan, I didn't have a company pension plan to speak of. So I decided property was the way forward. Just went from there, really. Okay. And, uh, you know, you mentioned things like BMV, below market value. Um, But I guess at the time, 
would you have would you have known sort of is that what you were targeting bmv deals or was it just so happened that something came across and you thought this is a good opportunity to add some value exactly that i, I you know i, I just use a bmv term you're right but i probably haven't even heard of the bmv yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> i just knew you know like like any any average homeowner i suppose i kind of knew what properties were worth so i knew if i knew if if a property was sort of well priced um yeah bmv is the wrong term because that second london flat was probably ten thousand um under you know what i thought it should be fetching even in its current state. And yeah, I just knew I could add value. They both needed refurbishment. Uh, I knew I could add value by doing that. And I know they become good rental properties uh, going forward because it's London. Demand in London's always been strong. Um, so, um, so you did those couple of properties, and then did anything change, or you're still doing the three-year <laughs> <laughs> no, saving for the kitchens? <laughs> yeah, that was the end of that, yeah, partly because the lender I was using at the time, HSBC, um, whilst they were happy to give consent to let, uh, what they did on the next property I bought was they said I had to afford both. Um, ah, right. So you, I soon run out of sort of room with, with HSBC, um, but by then I sort of caught the property bug. Uh, I'd made the decision to... Um, invest in property really it's a future pension you know i had a very good job working in the city and it was really a, a pension provision uh, job i didn't really like pensions for a variety of reasons um, i saw property as a much more flexible way of building wealth and it's leveraged right as well pensions aren't leveraged property is um so i kind of went from there um and um bought a couple of properties including the overseas one that we had the uh, interview on before uh, through a property source at the time um, and they uh, another one up in Nottingham and you know they turned out to be at the time average deals and I thought well hang on a minute I can I can do better than this myself um, and that's when I kind of went a bit more hardcore into sourcing my own and building my own portfolio. Okay and what did that look like so you decided okay these are okay but I can do better so where did you start in, in terms of like sourcing your own so way back in those, I mean, one advantage we've got these days is, you know, there's so much more uh, education provision. We've got podcasts, you know, technology's changed. We've got lots of forums, we've got Facebook forums, um, we've got other forums like Property Tribes and so on. Uh, tons of information out there. Back then, there was a forum called Singing Pig. For any listeners that uh, might remember that, uh, I think it's defunct now. Um, and I don't believe that was even a pure property investing website. It just had a property investing section. So I used to hang out on there and I used to hang out on the Motley Fool, which had discussion boards. Again, those are now defunct, but they had property investing um, discussion boards. So I was kind of building knowledge there and that's where I came across the term BNB. And that's where I came across the original idea of direct marketing uh, to vendors. Um, and there was a guy way back in Singing Pig Days called, if I remember rightly, Greg Jackson. Um, and it's, it's probably, I think it's one of only two educational things I've ever bought. Uh, he, was, he was doing a BMV manual um, about, he was doing this full time, uh, marketing director vendors and, and doing deals. Um, I bought that manual and I had a chat with Greg and, you know, I thought, okay, this is something I'm, I'm going to go for. Um, and uh, I did slightly differently um, because I kind of did remotely deciding to focus on Swindon. Um, but I also did some advertising in London, managed to pick up a couple of deals there as well. So that's what really kind of, you know, um, 
turbocharged my my investments, if you like, and really ramped up the number of properties I was buying. All right. So what would that look like in terms of uh, how did you decide what to look for? Because below market value could mean anything in any location below market value in London. You know, you might be talking maybe a hundred thousand off the off the asking price, whereas up north it might be ten thousand, twenty thousand. How did you decide what property and uh, what was BMV to you? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. So, I mean, the, the, the holy grail was um, back then you could get 85% loan to value mortgages. So, the holy grail was to get around 15, 20% discount off the market value. Um, if you managed to do that, then you know, you probably had another term banded around no money down deal. Um, then, back then with Mortgage Express, same day remortgaging, you were able to. Um, Essentially, buy a property no money down. That that that's not quite true because you you've got to spend quite a lot of money on marketing to get there in the first place, and there's legal fees and broker fees and everything else to to pay up. And obviously, you need some money to get it into a ready to let state. But so I was marketing with the view of just buying a discount. Um, and really, I started doing it not because you know I particularly wanted properties 15, 20% BNV, although that's nice. I was buying them. I was finding I was having to buy at a discount, especially in London just to get the numbers to stack yeah. anywhere near, near sensible. Uh, and the same in Swindon, to be honest, at the time, where, where rents were at the time. So I was just trying to get it to stack at a 7% yield, gross yield. Um, and I figured with, with interest rates where they were at the time, if it stacked up then, then you know, rent inflation, capital growth inflation would, would kind of take, take over the rest. Um, so really, <laughs> I wasn't specifically looking at 15, 20% BNB deals, although I did secure some of those. And in fact, up to, I think my best was 30% and that was in London. Um, but it was more a question of making the, the, the numbers stack for me. So sort of properties I was targeting were, you know, your kind of bread and butter, buy to let, uh, you know, I would recommend anyone start with two, three bedroom houses, one and two bedroom flats, those sort of things. Um, and that's, you know, really those, those kind of houses, uh, sort of people end up responding to those sorts of adverts anyway. You don't get people with five bedrooms attached mm -hmm. uh, responding because they tend to have other assets and other other um, sources of wealth they can use to dig themselves out of any, any kind of hole that they might find themselves in. Okay. Um, I, I want to kind of just go into a bit more because we've talked um, in the past about strategies and um, having formulas and... Um, and I want to sort of get onto the decision tree. Uh -huh. So um, how about we just jump straight into that? So how did you come up with this idea and um, and what does it look like for some people who don't know? The, the decision tree itself, you mean? Yeah. Okay, I guess the, the, the thing to note there is the decision tree is not, you know, I didn't invent it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to say I did. Um, so a decision tree and, you know, and in the article that I talk about some latest work in magazine, talk about expected values. Um, you know, those expected value is a concept in probability. And I first came across it in my uh, sort of investment banking days. It's, it's used uh, in, in trading. So you're looking at expected values of a given trade and whether you should go into it or not. Um, decision trees are, you know, it, it's, a, it's an, an, a tool basically, and you know, my background in change management and business analysis means there's lots of tools we would use uh, when we're deciding whether to do you know, option A or option B, and a decision tree is, is one such tool you can use to help make a decision. 
Um, so really, what I like doing is kind of borrowing um, off the approach I took when I did my PhD. Um, one of the ways you can get a PhD is by taking uh, methods used in one particular branch of whatever subject you're studying, for me it was mathematics, and applying it to your particular problem um, and coming up with a new way of doing things. So really I'm doing the same thing. I'm taking uh, tools that you apply in probability and trading and business analysis and seeing if they can help us make smarter decisions in, in property investing. So, um, yeah, that's where that idea came from. Okay. And what do you remember? Was there a first property that stood out for you that you thought, oh, okay, I can apply this logic to this investment property? Yeah, I mean, the example I give in the, uh, in the magazine, probably one where we did it most formally. So that was a short leasehold flat that we picked up at a good price. Um, and that, that lends itself to a number of, uh, number of exits, really. So with a short lease, do you extend the lease uh, and then sell it on? So, you know, generally speaking, if you extend the lease, you're going to get you know, a bigger pool of buyers. So it might be quicker to sell um, and you might get uh, a higher price for it. But you've got the downsides of, well, extending the lease takes time. You've got to go to the freeholder, you know, create prices or the legals to do. You might have holding costs associated with that if you're financing it through a bridging loan or whatever. Um, so how do you make that kind of decision? It's, it's not immediately obvious because so many tools that we use and so many measures and deal stacking tools that we use in property are very much point in time. So, you know, usual things like gross yield, it's point in time. But how do you really assess whether, you know, taking a quick return now at a lower price versus taking a slightly bigger return in the future, but at a, at a higher cost? And that, to me, is not quite so so obvious. Um, so that's where the decision tree came in handy because you can use it along with the concept of expected value and say, well, okay, if we do this option, what that look like? What's the expected value? Um, and the expected value is really just your anticipated outcome of that particular investment based on probabilities. Um, and you can look, look at that across a number of options, factoring the costs, and um, it just gives you, it's, it's another, I'm not saying it's fail safe, I'm not saying it's the only tool you should use, but it just gives you another insight into which might be, be the best way forward. Sort of like I see it as um, making that thought process that, can be you know if you if you just got it in your head it can go round and round and you feel like you go around in circles should i do this should i do this i'm not sure if that if i do that then that happens and i suppose using this tool as a uh i guess like a flow chart is that how you would describe it whereas um kind of it's really just a structure it's just a structured way of thinking so it's a way of putting all those things that you're talking about that are floating around in your head you know do we do this do we do that do we do a new kitchen do we not bother you know, what, what difference does that make on the sale price? And sort of kind of putting a finger in the air and, and having a kind of intuitive feel what might be the best way forward. It's just a way of structuring your thinking. Um, you know, it, it's not fail-safe. It does require you to have a strong understanding of the kind of macroeconomics in your market. <laughs> you need to have a good idea of what each um, final exit strategy will fetch in terms of market value and what the cost will be. But if you can get good estimates for that, then it's just a way of structuring your thinking. That's the way I, I look at it. So whenever you've got a complex problem, you really need to break that down and have some way of stepping through it. Um, and a decision tree is just one way of, of, of helping with that. 
So do you have a, a template that you apply to, um, you know, sort of the next project, different projects, or is it more, okay, um, you start from scratch from each one and sort of do an almost mind map of these ideas and, um, and follow them to the end. So uh, all the different sort of possibilities. Yeah, I kind of approach things differently these days. So, you know, with a bit more breadth of experience, I'm more focused on finding, you know, good deals, which are hard to do. And then, um, you know, all these things are just tools in your toolbox, um, in, in, in my view. So I like to look at a property and then look at the tools in my toolbox and decide, uh, you know, which tool is going to be best placed for that property. And obviously the vendor situation as well. So it's slightly back to front. So I don't necessarily go out these days and say, okay, I'm looking for two bed terrace houses of the single lets, or I'm looking for three bed houses I can turn into five bed HMOs or anything like that. I'm more looking at, okay, if I think this can be made into a deal by applying technique A, then then that's what then that's what I'm going to do. So a decision tree might come out of the might come out of the toolbox on some of those deals. Uh, on other those deals, it, it 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 won't be applicable. Maybe it's an assisted sale for whatever reason, uh, or some other other tactic. Okay, and uh, the criteria that you so you've got your decision tree. You've got all these different options. How do you how do you personally actually decide which one to go through? So you said there about it's you know depending on the property and the vendor situation. Um, but I guess there's an element of it's got to fit what you're looking to do as well. Exactly, and there's a number of variables. So, so decision tree actually, you know, can help you decide which, which way forward, but there's lots of other things implicit in that decision tree that may or may not be, you know, suitable for you at that time. So, yeah. um, you know, one option, take something at random, might be to, to, to do an extension and, and, you know, create extra value that way, but... There's an extra financing cost to that. Um, there's an extra capital input from your own reserves uh, into that, which you, you may or may not have. Um, and then you've got to keep a, you know, an eye on the bigger picture. So you know, there's um, what's, what's the economic term for it? Pestle, is it? Um, you know, kind of macroeconomic factors um, about what your local housing market is doing, uh, what local political landscape is. Uh, you know, so certainly pre-Brexit and pre-election, you wouldn't want to be sat on a big you know, aspirational house that's costing you a fortune in bridging payments because the, the sales market you know, effectively fell off a cliff. Um, so you know, you've got to, the, the decision tree gives you the mathematical analysis of which way to go forward. But you've kind of got to wrap that around a lot more kind of market intuition and market knowledge about, about okay. what you do. So you know, I would never use a decision tree in isolation because that might say, well, okay, I'm actually going to get the best return doing a 12 month long project and creating this massive aspirational house but then it's at the end of it I can't sell it because the macroeconomic conditions say that nobody's buying that sort of level of, of property then well, I'm going to be in trouble yeah no, I like this idea that you've got this on the one hand a clear structure and then on the sort of another layer on top of these nuances the grey areas that like you said okay you've got the holistic view of the macro like overview if you like but also it's for example um let's say you've got a property i'm going to choose sort of up north where it's um a great you know great roi you know we're talking like 20 percent plus um because you can buy it really cheap good rental good rental income on it on paper 
but actually there's an there's another cost that you can't put into maths i think and that's sort of um like for example the tenant profile perhaps you know if you buy in a very cheap area you might get a tenant profile that you uh, are not you know you don't want to particularly manage that type of tenant profile but um you know where i'm going with this so there's yeah, absolutely right i 100 percent agree 100%. you know you might have more voids you might have more maintenance you might have just more issues generally where if you went for something with a slightly you know uh, less roi but actually you're not getting as many voids and it's less hassle so T- totally agree you know this is why i've stayed away from investing up north to be perfectly honest is exactly right. I mean, you see these, uh, in fact, I'm on, on a particular mailing list and they, they often send through properties with, you know, double digit yields. Um, and it looks very tempting, but yeah. you know, a double, dig, double digit yields only make sense if you can actually collect that money mm. you know, month in, month out, year in, year out. And if you can't, then your, your, your actually achieved yield is, is much, much less. And as you say, you've got to then compare that to investing down south. And certainly in London, you know, Yields are terrible in London, but you know, I, I can't remember when I last had a void in London. Mm. It, it, it rarely happens. Um, in fact, you usually have the opposite problem in that, and this is something I'll never do again because it went pear-shaped once, but you often get people wanting to move in literally the day after someone else moves out. Um, you know, the, the, the demand can be, can be that strong. So for me personally, because it was a pension provision, I wasn't particularly looking for income. Um, you know, I stuck to areas I knew, I stuck to down south because although people say you should consider uh, capital gains in your calculations, I, I think that's totally wrong. I think you absolutely should consider capital gains in your calculations because when I'm 65 and, and had enough or 70 and had enough of all this, then capital gains is, is, is going to be the big win. It's the, you know, the, it's the income along the way keeps you in the game. Um, but I think it's the capital gain that, that, that really pays off. Again, it's down to your why and it's down to why you're investing in property. But, um, you know, I, I totally agree. Don't, don't necessarily chase uh, high yields because they come, with, they come with a cost associated with it usually. Yeah, definitely. And it's, um, it's, you know, another term for it is an opportunity cost. So mm. while you might be chasing the rents in, a, in one property, you could be spending that time reinvesting somewhere else but you know it's not to say i mean i'm, I'm from up north if you like and uh, and i've got, I, I've got properties here um and they do very well thank you so I, I you know i've managed to find kind of good enough locations still a great roi and they're not as you know they're not they're not a lot of hassle at all no, I agree. I would, I so, yeah, I should caveat that and say it's not, I'm not just blanket. <laughs> we can't blanket, we can't blanket the north. Sorry, everyone from the north. I'm talking um, more about you know the, the the deals you see that might be you know fifteen, sixteen percent plus gross yields. Where, but like you said, it's 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 about your why, and if your yeah. why is you want to invest local where you are or the places you know, well, great. And I think um, I just hear that you know sometimes people say I'm not sure what strategy I want to do, and I, I don't know where to invest, and I think it's useful to like you said flip it on its head and focus on the why once you're clear on why you're doing what you're doing what is important to you then you can almost reverse engineer that decision tree so you can work backwards and say okay well if i know what roi um, i want and if i know what area i want if i know what tenant profile then it almost 
that it funnels back to a few different options. So I think you can use yeah. it that way as well. I agree. And, and what you touched upon there is also not, not just about what you're wanting from a financial uh, sort of perspective, but be honest about the skill sets and what you're willing and not and willing resources. to resources. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure there are landlords out there that, you know, target these 15, 16% gross yield buying properties of, you know, £20,000 a pop or whatever. Uh, but you'll be dealing with a certain tenant demographic. Now, maybe your skill set is, is, you know, hugely suited to that. Maybe you're great at that kind of, you know, what is going to be a much more hands-on management intensive role and perhaps your communication skills and ability to get on with with that kind of profile of individual is is great in which case go for it um you know i wouldn't be <laughs> and, uh, i'll be honest about that and equally you know i don't i don't actually enjoy the mechanics of being a landlord that you know i didn't get into property to be a landlord i got into property to to build wealth so i like a much more hands-off less management intensive um, investment so just be honest about your own skill set as well when you're building that into your into your strategy mm, I um, yeah I completely agree it's I think I think it takes time to understand all the different nuances and get a feel for it because just because you know you people listening might have a pot of money or they might be working with investors just because you can use that money in, in a certain way doesn't mean that you should yeah. <laughs> um, and especially for sort of people starting out, it's just working out actually what is important to them. Yeah. Um, and, and what is, not just what is possible, because you could spend, you know, you, you could easily spend 12 months looking for this incredible high yielding pro- property. Um, okay. And you might even get it at the end of the year, but you spent a, a year of your life like waiting for this great deal that, um, what else could you have done if you could you have done two or three other ones or five or ten? I don't know, but uh, there's an opportunity cost there as well. I agree, and you know I see that quite quite a bit um, with people waiting for that perfect deal. You know the one that's 25% BMV that they can add value to that can remortgage all their money back out, and you know and it nets whatever 500 pounds a month cash flow. That's great, and you know they probably exist, um, but they come along once in a blue moon, um, and, and as you're saying maybe going for slightly less perfect deals just gets you going. And, you know, especially if you're investing down south and you're looking for capital growth, then it's, it's time in the game. Um, so, you know, I bought some of my properties uh, right at the peak of the market, you know, 2006, 2007. Um, yeah, but I'm glad I did. You know, at the time you could say, oh, well, that was a bad move. But, you know, fast forward again, where are we now 13 years later? And, mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's, that's but a blip, especially in London. So sometimes you're right, you just kind of have to get on with it. because, um, And then you'll get an experience. So again, you know, you see people saying, oh, I'm thinking of buying a 28-bed HMO. <laughs> it's like a first deal or something. <laughs> yeah, great. The, the, the numbers might look great, but, you know, good luck on keeping that filled and keeping everyone happy. And keep it sane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, some of it just comes out of experience. So sometimes it's good to just start and then you actually realise, well, actually, you know, I do like that bit of, of, of property investing, but I'm not so keen on this aspect of it. And that will tell you your, your direction going forward. Okay. I think, um, what would you say to people just starting out? So, I, you know, one reason I like the decision tree is, yes, you can go into all the, you know, all the finite details of it all. But actually, as a very simple concept of, okay, 
a sort of analysis of the exit strategies, then um, how would you uh, sort of guide people in terms of, okay, they're going to take time out, they're going to take an hour out of their Sunday morning to sit down, they've seen this property, what can they do with it? Where, where would they start with analysing that? Because it potentially could be quite overwhelming and if you're not sure on all of the different options. Yeah, I would say, you know, if you're just starting out, then keep it simple. Um, get very clear on your why, um, exactly what you're looking for. Because um, different types of investment are, are very different outcomes and very different, again, skill sets. So again, you see people saying, I don't know whether to go into service accommodation, I don't know whether to buy a single let. You know, two extremely different um, strategies, if you like. So get very clear on your why. You know, and that narrows down a lot for a start. So when you say why, what should people be thinking about in terms of their why? So for me, it's, you know, are you looking primarily for income? Are you looking for capital growth? Are you looking for a blend of the two? You know, be realistic. How much time have you got to to apply to this? Um, certainly be realistic in terms of, you know, any kind of aspirations you might have on giving up your day job because that does take, I mean, there are exceptions. I know you've done exceptionally well on that front, but, you know, generally speaking, that, that takes time. Well, it did um, take time, absolutely, and I built it up on the side, so I went part-time for a few yeah, years, and I built it up, so, I, yeah, it's, I suppose it, it comes back to whatever works, like you say. And what resources have you got? Yeah. You know, how much funds do you have? Yeah. You know, what's your credit rating like? You know, start off, go and talk to a mortgage broker, because if you can't get a mortgage, you're going to be pretty dead in the waters. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I would always say to people, focus on strategies of ownership so i know rent to rent i know you do this yourself but uh, i know rent to rent is you know very much a, a kind of hot topic but that's not an ownership strategy it's a control strategy so um if you're looking to build you know if your why is well actually i want to create a pension and build long-term wealth then rent to rent isn't really the way forward unless you've got a strong you know option to buy at a sensible level somewhere down the line um so just make sure you're looking at deals and looking at strategies that actually correlate with what you're looking to do, what your skill sets are, how much time you've got available, how much funds you've got available, and you know, bring all those together. And that, that narrows it right down you know, to start with. And you might say, well, okay, actually, for me, it's going to be um, buying two and three bed houses. I've got enough funds to get started. I can get mortgages. I'm going to buy locally because that makes sense. And straight away, you've narrowed it. And then, you know, the two things I always look for in any deal, in any, any strategy is, is buy well. So buy at some kind of discount if you can to the market value and make sure you can add value in some way. That might be a simple ref refurbishment, it might be a loft conversion, it might be expansion, whatever it might be, turn it into an HMO. Um, but if you, if you get those two things right, if you can buy well and add value, then you're going to be pretty much set going forward. I think it's also worth noting as well. So let's say, for example, people decide, okay, I want 12% ROI, return on investment. Um, I think it's useful to think of the boundaries. So, okay, 12% is, is good. And obviously anything above that, great, amazing. But where does the boundary fall? Where are you willing to draw the line? Yeah, I, well, touch on another big topic that... Um... I gave in a webinar, didn't I, uh, a, a few months back. When you're looking at figures like that, you've got to, again, you've got to take a, a, a holistic approach because ROI is a function not just on how good a deal you've found, but it's a function of leverage as well. So the higher the leverage, the higher your ROI. 
um, and this is if we just to be clear if we're talking ROI about return on your capital invested then obviously the less capital you've got invested the higher your ROI so you can have two identical properties you know one at say 60% loan to value and one at 75% loan to value and the 75% loan to value one will have much higher ROI because you've got less capital in the deal that doesn't make it a better investment you know by definition if, if, if I have an identical house an identical tenant in it um, and I just leverage differently one cannot be a better investment than the other right they are by definition the same investment but one can have a higher ROI so just leverage more but that leverage comes with a risk so you know you're more exposed um, to uh, things like voids because your your mortgage interest costs are going to be high you're more exposed to the mortgage market because you know I can remember when the financial crash happened and we went from you know 85 up to 90 percent loan to value mortgages you know, and overnight, most of that just disappeared and we, you know, kind of settled at the 75%, 80% mark, mark now. So if, if you're highly leveraged and then you can't refinance or the property prices drop, so your actual loan to value is higher, you know, you just create more problems. So I'm not saying it's wrong to leverage up higher, but just be aware of the risks. So um, you just can't look at things like ROI in, 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 in isolation. Um, or if you're going to, then you need to choose a debt level that's, that, that makes sense. So for me, I look much more about, if, it, if we're talking about to hold strategies, and I look much more on yield on debt. Um, yield on debt. So yield on debt. So, explain. so you've got a certain uh, mortgage on the property. So irrespective of the property price, you have... So let's, let's, take, a, let's take an example. So say I've got a £100,000 house and I've got a £70,000 mortgage, I look at the yield as a function of that £70,000 mortgage, not the £100,000 value. The reason I do that is because to stay in the game, I've got to pay the mortgage month in, month out. It doesn't really matter what the capital value is doing. You know, equity is great on paper, it doesn't pay the bills. Um, so by looking at the yield on debt, I know that um, if, say, that is 7 or 8%, um, then I know that effectively my mortgage rate has to get up to 7 or 8% for me to go underwater. So having a buffer, you know, given where interest rates are now, if your yield on debt is around 7 to 8%, you're probably in a reasonably safe place, right? Because the, your effective mortgage rate has to hit 8% before you, you're effectively going cash flow negative. I'm kind of ignoring, you know, voids and maintenance and so on, but, but as, a, as, a, as, a, as a tool for analysis, I think that's, that's quite a handy one. And in some senses, it's better than ROI because if I focus purely on ROI, then I'm tempted to leverage higher. Um, mm. Yield on debt is lower. And, you know, we're still in uncertain times post-Brexit, etc. Who knows what's going to happen to interest rates? And if your yield on debt is 4 or 5%, then you're in a lot less safe position than if your yield on debt is, is 8 to 10%. So where, do you, where, where have you got your markers on? So I like to be around 8%. Um, you know, on, on a new purchase, um, portfolio-wide, I'm, I'm much higher than that, but that's, that's just because, you know, I bought a lot of it many years ago. And that's actually why I don't like remortgaging, which probably goes against grain slightly as well. But <laughs> generally speaking, I prefer not to remortgage because, again, it keeps my debt lower, keeps my yield on debt lower, and keeps my cash flow higher. Um, but if you don't have to as well, so I think um, coming back to what we've seen about, you know, the reason why and having that... Uh, understanding of 
of what you want and what you want to achieve. Um, I think having a long term, so for you, for example, it might be the pension part. Uh, and people at different stages in their lives, you know, you meet somebody who are in the 70s and they might just want to have, you know, create a, a legacy to hand down to their children. But you might meet someone at a different point in their life and let's say stereotypically, you know, 18, 25 year old. Um, let's say a 25 year old that wants to get out of the day job for them, perhaps taking more of a, not more of a risk, but higher, higher leverage to get more. Uh, they might want more cash flow or they might they might choose like uh, you know for example the rent to rent so it's it's to me it's always a stepping stone it's mm-hmm. a stepping stone to get out of the day job and high cash flow to allow me the time to look for those other those other type of deals as well because yeah of, of course i want the capital appreciation as well but if it's a, if it comes to a choice well i've got this i can only really do this option on this option because i've got limited resources then okay for now let's go with short-term goals that will then allow me to go on to do um, other other bigger deals that like you say are less leveraged so you've got they're sort of quote-unquote safer more kind of secure deals that makes sense. I mean, what you described there, really coming up with a project plan that's effectively what you've done project plan I love it (laughs) (laughs) right I'm gonna I'm gonna write that one down you know you've kind of got Again, if I borrow, you know, analogies with with corporate working life, you know, often multi-year projects will have phases. Um, so you've effectively got a phase one. Your phase one, I, I, you know, I need some short-term cash flow so that I can go part-time or, or give up the day job or whatever, which gives me the the time to move forward and go to phase two, which might be more you know, ownership type strategies. So yeah, coming up with a project plan is absolutely the right thing to do. And your why is driven by where you're going at the end of your, you know, by the time you get to phase N, whatever N might be, um, which is to have, you know, a legacy or whatever it is, or, you know, a, a mortgage-free portfolio or whatever people are looking to do. But that's, that's the end game. But, yeah, what you're, what you're describing is coming up with a, with a project plan with a, with a number of phases. And, you know, set yourself milestones along the way. When does phase one end? What's the milestone? That's what you do in corporate life, right? I used to work on multi-year IT projects. We just have phases. Phase one is to do this. When when we know we've completed phase one, we've hit this milestone. We have a a key objective. Right, now we're ready for phase two. And again, not just look at the numbers and say, okay, phase one ends when I hit that 5K a month profit margin. Actually, if you hit the 5K um, target but, but you've created another job for yourself and you've running around and uh, you know suddenly you've got this full-time business rather than yeah. a part you know a part-time job for example so again being clear on what does that look like in terms of lifestyle if that's important to you I mean some people might want the full uh, you know full-time job of managing the properties but most people i suppose get into property for flexibility of time and, and time freedom so yes that's that holistic look and it, i think it's looking at you know what, what you value really what your values are so you know for me you know like i said at the start i don't really do any consulting work anymore i could i could still do my property business uh, alongside it and i could earn considerably more money but for me one of the biggest values now as i get old or older is uh, is time and freedom, um, you know, and I—that's that, a key factor for me. So again, you should build this into your 
property project plan, if, if we're going to call it that, or investment blueprint, whatever you want to call it, and pay attention to that when you get tempted by things like service accommodation or any kind of strategy that's effectively an intensification of use, uh, which is what service accommodation is and what, what HMOs are, those intensification of uses generate the higher yield, they're yield enhancement strategies, but they, they come at a cost. And that, that, that's, you know, more intensive management oversight. Um, so yeah, just be honest with yourself. Like you say, you, you could probably create cash flow quicker by going for those sorts of yield enhancement strategies, but you might well have created a second job which might not be compatible with your first job or might not be compatible with your lifestyle or, or what you're ultimately trying your to do. values, absolutely. And I, I think it's worth noting that the values can change with, you know, as, the, as each phase comes to an end and you hit that target, that reason why might come to an end. So perhaps at the beginning for some people getting out of the day job is the goal that's, you know, they're going to value the time and, the, you know, that's what they're aiming for. But actually, when you when you achieve that and you're out of the day job, it's like, now what? <laughs> what what am I doing again? Yeah. What, so, so, what, why am I getting up in the morning? You know, it's like uh, then you then then you have to create new values and new a new reason why to to push you to the you know through the next phase. You make a very good point. This is why I don't like you know when I used to go to interviews for jobs and people say you know what's your fa- where do you see yourself in five or ten years? Yeah, who knows? I, I used to want to honestly say I haven't bloody clue. Um, <laughs> You know, so many things change. That's why I don't like actually five-year goals and stuff like that. I think you should bring your, your, your goal horizon much, much, much shorter and just revisit them much more often because, like you say, they change because your values change and how you want to live your life changes. Um, and that's what yeah. yeah. no, uh, oh, uh, I like this holistic overview of just, yeah, it's, I think it's a really... It's just a really useful way to look at things. So just don't always take things on face value on the numbers. Just think of things like what does it mean to you? So if I do this, then uh, what does that mean? So um, you know, um, Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad. Well, the actual rich dad is a guy called Keith Cunningham, and brilliant, brilliant guy. If you no know, people haven't heard of him, but definitely worth looking up. Um, he does all like the Tony Robbins seminars and that kind of thing but he um on one of his podcasts he said about secondary about secondary consequences uh-huh. and i was like yeah it's so true it's okay you've got the first consequence of uh perhaps let's say you choose a a property that's got the high yield but the first sort of negative consequence if you like is that you have more voids um, but then the secondary consequence of that is what does that mean? What does that mean to the impact on your cash flow? And then, and then what does that mean? You've got to, you know, you're more at risk and more. So yeah, these, that, that, just that concept of thinking of the secondary consequences, like the th- second, third, fourth impact. Yeah, absolutely. Butterfly effect, I suppose. The way I put yeah. It, yeah. And I think, yeah. It's a cultural thing as well, you know, I think politicians are perhaps the uh, best example of not looking at second order consequences, yeah. you know, and, and that feeds into, into the property sector. Um, so, you know, here's a good example of second order consequence. So section 24 tax changes, uh, which hit any landlord that's either in the higher rate tax bracket or whose property income takes them into the higher rate tax bracket, uh, is going to be impacted. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of them. So, 
you know, I've, I've tended to, for long-term tenants, I let the, the rent stay the same because, you know, I kind of value, one of my values is not to do very much from a property <laughs> management perspective. Um, so if I've got a tenant, you know, I've got tenants been with me over 10 years, um, you know, if they pay the rent on time and look after the property, then great. You know, I'm not looking to increase the rent every year. So I tend to let the rent, you know, fiscal drag or whatever you want to call it, lack the market. And then as and when they leave, you know, probably have to give it a refurb or, or a spruce up. Um, and then I'll, I'll knock it back up to market rent. But, you know, I'm, I'm revisiting that as, as, a, as an approach. And that's the second order consequence of, of Section 24. So... Um, I can think of one property in my portfolio where I will, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with it, but we'll probably have to look at potentially evicting uh, a single mum because I know she can't afford any more rent because she gets housing benefit top up. But, you know, she's been there so long that the fiscal drag now is it's way below market rent. And, you know, if the tax situation stayed the same, I'd probably left it alone. Um, but with the tax situation it is, I'm thinking very, very carefully and seriously about what my options are. And that's the second order consequence, right, for, for, for the government. So if I do end up having to, to give her notice, you might well become a problem for the state. Mm. Um, you know, and politicians are a great example of, of ignoring second order consequences. And I think people in general, you know, so you make a very good point. You've got to look at what all the knock-on effects of every decision that, that, that you're making. How does that fit into your plan? Yeah, absolutely. And they obviously come into the into that decision tree of just like you said, more the macroeconomics of understanding. It's not just about what you do in your choices, but what are the limitations and what are the impacts of things that are outside of your control as well. Yeah, how does that how does that yeah. Great. Okay. Well, we have gone into a lot. I'm really really pleased with uh, all these different topics we've talked about. I think it's hopefully given people whom a lot to think about you know whatever stage they're at whether they're just starting out and looking at the very basic simple decision tree or whether people are perhaps mid you know phases and shifting to a new phase or um just looking at things in a different way i guess but uh, yeah any final kind of comments or um words to the audience what you know any words of wisdom <laughs> Uh, <laughs> words of wisdom. <laughs> Only wisdom. Um, I would just say, you know, it, it, just just to summarise what we've been talking about, really, look, look, be very clear about your direction and your focus and where you're going. And um, I would say, make sure you get, you know, I call it the, the, the pillar of stability. Really, make sure you've got things like where you're currently living, you know, your job and your resources, you know, sorted. Basically, that's going to give you the strongest. Uh, launch pad into property investment um, so, so get those sorted first would be my you know I, that goes slightly against the grain I know um, but I think you should become a homeowner first before you become a, a property investor that's just my personal view um, and that's largely because actually buying your own property is one of the best investments you can possibly do um, simply because any gains are, are, are tax-free for a start uh, you don't have the three percent surcharge on stamp duty. You can generally get lower interest rates. Uh, you can generally get higher loan to values, um, and you've got to have somewhere to live. It's not, you know, an investment property. I can buy another investment property, or you know, I don't have to. But I have to have somewhere to live. So I'm either paying a mortgage or I'm paying rent, and people forget that. So when they say, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm throwing away money on rent," actually, you're not. You need somewhere to live, right? So even if you're um, you know, even if you're paying a mortgage, 
you know, there's, there's kind of an, an imputed rent figure implicit within that, right? I like that, yeah. <laughs> you've got to pay, you've got to pay something. So, you know, rent is not, not throwing money away because it's, it's not an either or investment. So I would always encourage people to, to get their ducks in a row first. And once you've got that, then like you said, look at your, look at your whys, look at your values and come up with a project plan. And that might have multiple phases, but just get some sort of direction clear before you start otherwise you just get distracted right i'm sure we've all done it i've done it you end up bouncing around looking at the next yeah. shiny you know shiny penny syndrome mm-hmm. and, and not actually getting any traction so just get very clear about where you're starting and, and, and go for it great i think that's a great place to wrap up there and uh, thank you very much for your time look forward to reading the article in the magazine as well no problem so um and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon and you thanks michelle take care man bye bye